Welcome to ED ECMO. Welcome. Welcome to ED ECMO. This is ED ECMO. All right, ED ECMO, this is round two. This is with Brian Grunau, and we are going to be asking a very important question. When do you transport your out-of-hospital cardiac arrest? Now, first thing I want to tell you about Brian. Brian, I love Brian. Brian is the kind of guy who just takes on a project and doesn't just answer the question superficially. He, like, gets into the weeds. Brian, um, he was at Reanimate. He took Reanimate and then went back up to Vancouver and has now become one of the world leaders in ECMO and has created, basically, for much of Canada, a, a system that makes sense, a system that is data-driven, a system that takes the data and says, how do we improve our overall survivorship for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest? Now, the question we are asking here is going to get pretty deep. We are going to get pretty deep in these weeds. And so if you are, like me, asking this question, if you are actively involved with your medics and and they're asking you, when should we transport these out-of-hospital cardiac arrest? This conversation is going to be very interesting and I think you're going to want to know all of these details that you're going to hear. If you're not asking this question or maybe you're not so much of a quant kind of person, this might get a little bit a little bit deep, okay? So that's just a that kind of a warning here. But I think if you listen and you think about what's going on here, this question may seem very easy at the beginning. Just bring them. We just want you to bring them. Don't, don't stay in play. Just load and go. Bring the cardiac arrest to us. That might not be the right answer, okay? We want, our main goal is to improve overall survivorship, not just survivorship and get just more ECMO saves. We want to improve overall survivorship, and therefore, we need to have a very specific question or answer to when do we transport, and, which you're going to hear here, this is going to be different depending on the initial rhythm, different depending on the type of patients you have. And so let's dive into this. Brian Grunau, and when do we transport out of hospital cardiac arrest? Yeah, so the the part that we started at was that we first looked at our uh, existing outcomes among patients that we'd consider ECMO candidates. Mm -hmm. uh, And we looked at their uh, existing rates of ROSC and outcomes at hospital discharge. And we divided it by shockable and non-shockable rhythms. And the shockable rhythms are the ones that everyone keys on, and they really do the best with ECMO. Uh, but we found that our patients with initial shockable rhythms who uh, satisfied our ECMO, our ECPR criteria, almost 90% of them were achieving ROSC and also surviving until the point of admission to a hospital critical care ward. So that made us quite cautious and worried that by changing our protocols uh, as they currently exist, we might worsen our, our existing outcomes. Uh, and our EMS system is very much a quote-unquote stay-in-play system. Uh, so paramedics resuscitate in the field uh, and they terminate resuscitation if they're unsuccessful. So we were worried about changing this whole paradigm uh, to go in favor of a, of a transport protocol uh, and worried that we were going to worsen outcomes. So what we really wanted to do was uh, a few things with this with this study. For one, we wanted to uh, look at the time-dependent benefit of conventional on-scene resuscitation, and sort of see what the yield of the yield of survivors are per additional minute of on-scene resuscitation. And then we wanted to try and figure out 
uh, how well the absence of a pulse at any given time point predicted non-survival at hospital discharge. Oh yeah, and I forgot to tell you, Brian's wicked smart. So here's the deal. Let me. I'm going to jump in here several times during this talk just so that I can get us all onto the same page. So Brian asked the question, I get these patients, they're in cardiac arrest, I need to understand when do they continue to get better? When does their chance of staying at the scene continue to get better beyond what benefit I would give them by providing ECMO so that I don't worsen the outcomes of my VF patients who already have a very good survival in my current system. All right, with that, let's jump back into the conversation. What we want to do is we want to say, at what point at what point is their survival better if they get transported? So in my mind, I have to have some curve that tells me how effective CPR is, eCPR is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this study does not include in the potential benefit of eCPR. It's more looking at mitigating risk to conventional resuscitation. Because at this point, I feel like we don't really have uh, a perfect sense of what the benefit of eCPR actually is. I think we're getting a, I think we're getting a lot closer to it uh, with some of the uh, larger studies, uh, but we still have you know wide variation in outcomes looking at uh, different protocols at different centers. So it's difficult. It's difficult to say. For sure. So I see the figure two where we say, okay, at 10 minutes, we still get 60% or no, 50% of the people survive. So you probably, if the transport time is 15 minutes that the, and there's getting poor quality CPR during those times, then potentially you are losing 50% of your survivors if you leave at minute 10. Yeah, totally. It's it's saying that I think a lot of people use the words on-scene resuscitation doesn't work or conventional resuscitation doesn't work because overall you look at outcomes of cardiac arrest and someone might say, oh, in my region, we only have 6% overall survival. So that's basically zero. Mm -hmm. So conventional resuscitation doesn't work at all. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, overall that there's might be some validity to that. But when you look among the people who fulfill your ECMO criteria, we're talking about the cream of the crop. Uh, who do extremely well with conventional resuscitation, these young, otherwise healthy patients with witness arrests and initial shockable rhythms. And in this study, there was a 27% survival rate with conventional resuscitation. So, you know, it, it does definitely make uh, give one pause to think that we don't want to worsen outcomes of those patients. So when you look, just like when you said, if you look at uh, after 10 minutes of resuscitation, about... 60% of uh, survivors have already achieved a pulse. However, there's still 40% of people who are going to do well with conventional resuscitation who still have not uh, achieved a pulse. So I think that when you're starting an ECMO program and you're telling paramedics to, to scoop and run at 10 minutes, you have to make sure that you do a very committed effort to try and make sure that you are still achieving a pulse in those additional patients and I think it, uh, it's very important to, to track your outcomes uh, of those patients uh, and look at and make sure that you're actually achieving uh, ROSC in those patients while you're transporting uh, and, uh, and moving to hospital. Because if you're not, then, you know, even if you, even if you achieve a high proportion of survivors with ECMO, uh, you're still probably going to have worse outcomes overall if you're, if you're sacrificing those patients. Right. Okay. So then 
I, I totally agree. I think we're on the same page. If you 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 got to make sure that in your EMS system that you continue to give high quality CPR. Now, we probably will see a drop off of those traditional survivors if we start transporting at 10 minutes versus transporting at 35 minutes. Would you agree? So you're saying that we we might not achieve ROSC in some of those who would otherwise survive with on-scene? I would say, yes, I would say that the resuscitation quality, even in, even in places with mechanical chest compression devices, um, yeah. that, that the quality in the back of the rig is going to go down. And the question is, how much is it going to go down? And does yeah. the eCPR benefit actually make up for that decrease in survival? And I think what you just said is bang on, uh, and that's exactly the question that we need to wrestle with. Uh, and that, that's why I think it's so important, these uh, randomized control trials that are going on right now, uh, that they randomize patients at the juncture of the paramedic level so that the comparison is on-scene care versus transport plus ECMO uh, so that we can see the balance of those two treatment strategies. Because just like you say, we may lose a few survivors uh, by transporting, but ECMO might make up for those and then also give us additional yield uh, with those who remain in refractory arrest. Okay, so then your 8 to 24 minute window here. How did you, I, I, you used the word sensitivity and specificity, so maximizing the area under the curve. How did, how did you come up with particularly that minute 16? So the minute 16, yeah, so it's a bit, uh, it's somewhat complicated. So we didn't, we didn't incorporate uh, outcomes from ECMO, but we wanted to, uh, look at the risk that this patient in front of you with increasing durations of CPR would be an unsuccessful candidate at further conventional CPR. So we looked at the ability of a pulseless state to predict non-survival at hospital discharge. So we said, if a paramedic's in front of you, let's say at 10 minutes, what are the and he doesn't have a pulse right now, what is the likelihood that this patient is not going to survive to hospital discharge with further conventional efforts? So then we, so we classified patients if they did not have a pulse at a certain time point and they didn't survive at hospital discharge, then that was a true, uh, a true positive. And if they did not have a pulse and they did survive to hospital discharge, that was a false positive. So then we used uh, a receiver operating curve for a diagnostic test uh, to plot the ratio of false positives and true positives, and the inverse of that is sensitivity or specificity. And then we found that uh, the, the balance between overcalling or undercalling was at 16 minutes. Okay, <clears throat> so we're saying that the reason that we're interested in patients that get a pulse and don't survive. Uh, I'm just I'm trying I'm trying to get the association between the why those two variables are the important ones for us. Yeah. So the, I think the the critical thing is whether the patient if the patient gets a pulse and doesn't survive to hospital discharge. I don't think we really care about them mm -hmm. uh, because that's a uh, they may have gotten a pulse, but conventional resuscitation was still unsuccessful. So if we transport those patients. Uh, early. I don't think that really matters. Uh, but at the critical people are the ones who are going to survive to hospital discharge, who we may not get a pulse on by transporting too early. So 
we looked at the patients who uh, were pulseless at incremental time periods and then plot and then looked at their outcomes at hospital discharge uh, to see what the predictive ability of a pulseless state at different time junctures, how that could predict uh, hospital discharge mortality. So, and just this is actually maybe even a different question. So then during, in your study, you, do you find that as you go on in CPR duration that the number of ROSCs, the, the ratio of ROSCs to survival goes, I guess, in that state up, that, that there's more ROSCs per survival? Yeah, that's a good question. And that's, uh, I did look at that unofficially without the scientific vigor of the other uh, data in the study. And it seems that as you go along, you might still accrue, you're going to accrue a, a smaller proportion of ROSCs per minute as you go along, mm-hmm. but you're also going to see a higher proportion of non-survivors among those mm-hmm. uh, ROSC patients. So you're exactly right. And so what we're saying is that because that ratio, that, that there is less people walking out of the hospital, that that means that those are patients that were maybe salvageable if we had ECMO, but that if, that if we didn't have ECMO, that, that, they, that they turn out to be deaths. Yeah, that's another uh, really interesting question. Uh, so if you have, let's say you have a patient who achieves ROSC with conventional therapies at like 35 minutes mm-hmm. uh, versus an identical patient who doesn't achieve ROSC, but you put them on ECMO at 35 minutes, I doubt that the patient on ECMO is actually going to do better than the patient who got conventional ROSC. Because I think most likely then you're, the critical piece of whether they survive is their degree of neurological and multi-organ system injury. Uh, and their etiology of the arrest. So, you know, I think I don't think that you're going to get survivors among among those who wouldn't have survived anyways if they got conventional ROSC. Mm. Okay, you know what I mean? So, yeah, no, I I I think you're right. I, I, this is because I don't understand. I, I think premise here well enough. That's my problem here. So. How am I deciding that the patient should be going to the hospital at 16 minutes? What is the what is the that area that that area under the curve telling me that at 16 minutes their chance of this is better? So if you want to, uh, if you if you take a patient in front of you that does not have a pulse, mm-hmm. uh, and then you want to say this patient will not survive at hospital discharge, so you're gonna. At the very beginning, you're going to totally overcall it if you if you say that, right? If you say at time zero, mm-hmm. this patient doesn't have a pulse, therefore they're not going to survive to hospital discharge. Mm-hmm. You're going to totally overcall it because there are going to lots of people who do get a pulse, uh, later get a pulse and survive. But if you take a patient at, let's say, 45 minutes and say this patient does not have a pulse right now, my conclusion is they're not going to survive to hospital discharge. You're going to be right, uh, you know, basically 100% of the time, right? Because mm-hmm. they've all failed conventional efforts at that point. So then you you find a point in the middle where your uh, your balance of being right and wrong with that statement is the same. Where the yeah, where the chance of me saying you don't have a pulse, you're not going to survive. Where that's fifty percent. Yeah, where that's uh, where that's the, the chances of being right and wrong are are balanced. That's where the the sixteen minute comes out. Okay, got it. All right, so let's let's just uh, for a second start pontificate. So if we were to put into your your data, 
a let's say let's say they have a 20% reduction in survival, you know, relative uh, survival once you transport and they have a 30% increase in survival if they get to an ECMO center after 15 minutes. How do you have any just off the top of your head numbers that you would think would how this would change? Yeah, so so you're sorry, you're assuming a 20 a 20% survival with uh, with ECMO, is that what you said? I said a 30% survival, and I said a 20% decrease in survival uh, as a result of transporting patients. Hmm. Okay. So if you so if you start at the beginning overall with this cohort, mm-hmm. you're going to have a 27% survival overall. Mm-hmm. Which so is if amazing. Yeah, it's very it's very good in this in this selective patient population. So definitely not a you know definitely not nothing to lose. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. So if you decide to transport at let's say uh, fifteen minutes, so you're still going to have at that point uh, about eight or nine percent survivors in this in this group uh, of patients uh, if you continue to stay on scene. Um, so if you decrease that survival by by twenty five percent, you know they might go down to uh, six or seven percent. So you're gonna you're gonna miss a few of those. But then if you're getting thirty percent with ECMO, you're still gonna be better off. Does that make sense? Yeah, because you're so, not gonna sacrifice you're not gonna sacrifice twenty five percent of your overall survival because most of them are still gonna get uh, ROSC within the first uh, ten to fifteen minutes, right? Right. Yeah, I think, so I, I think actually I, what I'm putting together here is uh, kind of a ratio in my mind, because look, just, just even just having these graphs here are so helpful. Like that gra- figure three is really good. Like what you and Josh uh, Reynolds have done, I think it's, it's like the good, best stuff coming out because it's, it tells us, hey, this is what our comparative number is. Um, and so you guys should be hugely commended for this. But when I look at figure three, and I see that, you know, at 35 minutes, the chance of survival in this amazing cohort, uh, the full cohort, is, you know, 3%. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's kind of, I think, what we, we all think. We all think that the survival is really low out at those numbers, even in these great patient populations. Mm-hmm. So if I'm going to say... Of that patient population, the patient population, let's just go back. Let's do 15 minutes. At 15 minutes, there's an 8% survival in this cohort all over, or maybe 9%. If they get a 20% reduction in their survival because they get poor quality CPR, or not poor quality, but less than ideal quality of CPR in route, that puts you down, let's say, to 7%. And at 7%, you then get to the ER, but you get to the ER 15 minutes later because you have to transport somebody. Mm-hmm. So now your mortality is up to around 96%. And at 96%, now I'm going to increase you know, that survival by some number. I, whatever it is that, uh, that their expected mortality would have been 4%, but now their expected mortality is going to be 6%. Uh, that are, I guess, maybe 5%, uh, depending on how effective uh, eCPR is. That, these are the numbers that I'm trying to just toy with in my brain so that I take what you did and kind of, 
I just get a basic idea of what I think the, the, what we need to do, how well we need to do CPR and transport, and how well we need to do as far as outcomes of eCPR to make it better for patients to get transported. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, you, you know, the earlier you transport, the more you have to lose. Mm-hmm. And the later you transport, the less you have to lose with conventional efforts, but the less you have to gain f- with uh, eCPR, obviously, as our, uh, our likelihood of survival with, with ECMO decreases with every minute that we don't put them on pump, obviously. So that's why we, ca- we came up with that 8 to 24 minutes, because, uh, and we were trying to figure out what our like, clinically relevant numbers should be in terms of uh, how to make any conclusions based on this. Uh, and we said we used the eight minutes first because we said among survivors, 50% of them have already achieved ROSC by eight minutes. And then we used 24 minutes because we said that uh, 90% of survivors have already achieved ROSC at 24 minutes. And we thought that that was sort of the upper bound uh, at which you could even possibly get someone on ECMO in the under under 60-minute mark if you were if you were really close by. Uh, but then we did separate it out between shockables and non-shockables, and you can see the curves are, are quite different in figure three, uh, with the shockables doing like really amazingly well. Uh, you know, at 25 minutes, still nine nine to 10% of them are surviving to hospital discharge, which is which is incredible, uh, versus the non-shockables. And if your center is including non-shockables in your in your ECMO eligibility. Uh, you know, your risk of transporting those patients uh, at 10 minutes is, is way less. Uh, and you're probably going to want to transport them uh, quite early because their, their outcomes with conventional efforts is going to be uh, quite poor. Yeah, so you, I mean, yeah, this, this data is very telling. So if you, if you look at Dimitri, if you look at Minneapolis and you say, okay, they're transporting at 10 minutes, their expected survival, because they're all VF, their expected survival is 35%. And so when you see 42% that they get, that's, well, you, you got you to put these numbers together and make sure that they make sense. And, and it, clearly, he's not actually putting them on until 60 minutes. So at that rate, even the, 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 the shockable rhythms are, are at zero. Part of this, though, is the data set that you're using, right? Because if you don't have ECMO, you don't even try for 60 minutes, right? So, so there's a there's a some part of this where you get some added survivors simply because you did east, or you did conventional chest compressions for a longer duration. Mm-hmm. No, I totally agree that prognostication bias where the provider just uh, gives up. Uh, we found that in our uh, data set, among those who fulfilled our ECMO criteria, they. You know, like I said, they're the cream of the crop, so our paramedics were actually continuing out uh, until about 40 minutes for those patients, uh, although that was not true among the ones who had initial non-shockable rhythms. Uh, so that, that bias might have affected them a lot more than the shockables. Okay. All right, really cool things. Let's see, is there anything, uh, just just off, not on your, your, your paper particularly, but I'm just interested in in your opinion of the non-shockables. Uh, I think that there is, most groups, almost all groups do not include asystole. And I recently had a case where asystole turned out to be not asystole, and so you kind of get these questions of like, okay, am mm. I, get, am I getting, getting the right information? Should I pronounce these at the scene? But when you look at this patient population, asystole, PEA, do you think that we need to actually separate out those two as well? 
Yeah, that's a good, you know, that's a good question. I think we need a lot more, a lot more research uh, where that's uh, in that area specifically. We have, I am working on changing our protocol right now locally here. Uh, I actually got into this game because I wanted to help the non-shockables rather than the shockables. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I thought that the ECMO therapies were going to help the non-shockables on a much higher proportional basis than the shockables. Uh, whereas we might get much better survival uh, overall at just looking at the shockables. I thought the non-shockables were the ones that, uh, although our absolute survivors, uh, sorry, our, although our proportional survivors might be less, like we might be getting 15, 20% survival instead of a higher number, I thought the absolute survivors w- would be much higher because their outcomes right now are so terrible. Um, but you know, looking at looking at other centers who have done this in our own experience now, we haven't had a single uh, survivor yet uh, uh, with initial rhythm of asystole, uh, which is much to my disappointment. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I think outcomes are uh, better among the PEA group. So we've spent a lot of time trying to figure out how we can identify potential survivors uh, among the non-shockables and especially the asystole. Uh, so we've lo- learned from uh, the group in Paris, which has uh, incorporated uh, signs of life into their criteria. Uh, so what we're doing now is we're excluding patients with uh, with asystole unless they have uh, signs of life during CPR, uh, which we're de- defining as uh, movement, breathing efforts, or pupils under five millimeters. Uh, so we did... We did have one case uh, before we actually started our official protocol uh, of a young woman who had an initial rhythm of asystole, uh, and she turned out to have uh, myocarditis, uh, and she had 100 minutes of CPR and uh, ended up having a a normal neurological outcome. So that case really bugged me while while we were trying to figure out whether to exclude our asystoles or not. Uh, uh, But she did have signs of life during CPR, and obviously just one case, but... uh, I think that's uh, maybe a way how we can try and identify uh, among these uh, patients who otherwise have poor prognostic indicators, uh, patients who might be uh, have good outcomes with ECMO. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm in the same same opinion as you, Brian, that, that these asystoles should not be thrown out. Like, we need to really revisit. We need to revisit our termination <laughs> of resuscitation. We need to revisit all of these things that we hold to be true because the reason that we have thrown asystole out is because they traditionally didn't survive. But yeah. if you looked at every eCPR case, like all of these patients that are, have downtimes of 45, 60, uh, you know, an hour and a half, we would have all said that they could not possibly survive neurologically, and yet they are surviving neurologically. They're surviving totally. neurologically quite well. And so our assumptions in this game are off. Our assumptions that the brain is not going to make it are off. And if you have someone that's asystole, like, okay, so maybe it's maybe this is the progression of their heart from VF to asystole, but it doesn't mean that their heart is completely dead, and it certainly doesn't mean that they're neurologically devastated. So I, I agree. I, I think we need an entire revisit of what we've what we've <laughs> taken as mantra in the uh, in the outcomes of res- cardiac arrest. I love it that you're also fighting for the asystole, Zach. <laughs> I am. I really am. I, you had your case. I had my case. Like, this 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 does not make sense. Like the patient that was just in VF ten minutes ago. I mean, I think you and I have both seen this with with pigs, right? They'll be in VF. 
they'll be in VF for 10 minutes, and then all of a sudden, they just die. They, their heart just stops. And so you're telling me that the patient that was VF like three minutes before now has a stopped heart and is in asystole, that that patient is non-survivable? No, they're totally survivable. Their brain is fine. Their, their heart probably just needs a little bit of, of perfusion, and then it'll come back to beating full strong. The other thing in these cases is that in the non-heart issues, in the, in the non-coronary um, lesions, you get great perfusion with the with this system. And so in the traditional, okay, we, they got ROSC, now they're perfusing again, and we're going to put them on a ton of pressors and all of this, that doesn't have to occur with ECMO. And I think that, that once we get these high perfusion rates with high CPPs, that even asystolic hearts can come back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't really make sense physiologically if you have, let's say, you had two patients, one who was in VF and one who was in asystole. They both arrested at the same time. They started CPR at the same time. You got them on ECMO at the same time. You know, assuming that one does not have like an intracranial hemorrhage or an aortic dissection, it doesn't really make sense how their uh, perfusion, uh, cerebral perfusion status would be different. Yeah, yeah, I so, agree. The fact that the because the when you start them on ECMO, the heart's out of the equation, right? You don't you're no longer dependent on ROSC uh, or their a regeneration of their heart rhythm to have a good neurological outcome. All you really care about is brain perfusion uh, and then restoring external perfusion. So you know it doesn't really make sense why the why the heart rhythm, the initial heart rhythm, should affect your um, neurological outcome. But here we are, and we know the chocolate is too much better. <laughs> Well, okay, so here, you know, in our ER, we, we pronounce in the ER. So we, when this, it's a pretty high percentage of our patients, which I, I actually totally agree with this philosophy, is that you, there is not very much cost associated with putting someone on a pump, uh, particularly if you do it like we do it with these, like, component, you know, rotaflow, quadrax oxygenator. You put them on the pump, and, mm-hmm. then you, and then you just sit there, and you wait, and you see if the asystolic heart comes back. Because a lot of the times it does. Uh, I agree with you, the brain is the most important thing. But um, <clears throat> at least in, in the current stage, I think admitting a patient that's, that's in cardiac standstill has its issues. So if, if I had the choice of not doing these patients at all and only, and only doing patients that you know, have to have um, return of heart function or doing a lot more patients and then just watching for a couple hours and seeing if their heart starts beating again with their perfusion, I would take the latter. Hmm. And you're, you're, this is like uh, Dimitri's uh, algorithm. Is that sort of the same idea where he waits to see if they have a restoration of a heart rhythm? And if he doesn't, then he stops the ECMO pump. Yeah, I don't, I actually don't know how long the Minnesota group waits for that in the cath lab, but we'll give him a couple hours in the in the ER, if they if you know we had a prolonged arrest, they they we think that they're a, a reasonable candidate even after we we put them on the pump, but they have cardiac standstill, we'll we'll just you know have them sit there in the ER until we give them a couple hours, give them perfusion, give them their CPP up, and then if they don't get return of native heart function, then we will pronounce them. Really, eh? Yeah. But the alternative would be that we don't even that we don't start those patients at all on the pump. So yeah. I think I think if we can at least just give them the initial chance to get their heart back, 
then I think that their brain in, you know, I don't know the exact number, probably 50% of them. I mean, in our case, if you, if you got ROSC, I'm sorry, if you got admitted to the hospital and you survived your first day, just the cardiovascular part of it, then two-thirds of you walked out of the hospital. So mm -hmm. um, neurologically, it seems that, those, that these patients still do really, really well. So do you think uh, achieving, a heart, achieving heart function within a few hours of going on ECMO is uh, predictive of your cerebral injury? Uh, no, 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 not not predictive of cerebral injury. But, but if I can't get their heart started again, then I think uh, cardiac prognostic uh, prognostication is poor. Mm. I mean, how, I mean, you got to give them some time. Is it a day? Is it a day on the pump? I think that's probably too long. Is it uh, six hours? Okay, maybe that's reasonable. But if they have zero heart function, that's a problem. You know, you could look at you could look at it that way. You could also say that you know, if you don't have heart function, you can just put in an LVAD uh, and uh, put them on the transplant list. Uh, as long as they have neurological survival, then the heart heart function part doesn't matter as much. Uh, but it is possible that uh, heart function is a prognostic indicator of eventual neurological survival. So you know, with your patients who regain heart function. Uh, and you say a, a large proportion of them walk out of hospital neurologically intact, it might be actually that uh, the ones who do not regain heart function, they may have a, neuro a worse neurological outcome as well, even if you did uh, put them on a track for an LVAD. You know, right. it, may, it may be a marker of worse perfusion uh, prior to ECMO. All right. These are, these are such good questions, Brian. And <laughs> I, we don't know nothing. <laughs> we don't know nothing. That's right. <laughs> All right, let's wrap this up. Brian Grunel, what a great guy. Um, we talked about how time to transport. His study says somewhere around 16 minutes, but this is different between the PEA and a systole patient versus VF, meaning that the PEA and a systole group has such a poor prognosis and the benefits from ECMO might even be better for them. And so transporting those patients a little bit earlier makes more sense. The VF patients, a lot of them survive. And so we don't, do not want to decrease that ability for them to get the full resuscitation at the scene if the ECMO doesn't give them that much better of results. Now, we will need more data. As we get more data, as we start understanding what the benefit of ECMO is, we may change these numbers significantly. But this is the question that you need to have with your EMS department and decide when is the ideal time to stay in play versus load and go in your pre-hospital system. All right, from ED ECMO, July 2018, Joe Blezo, Scott Weingart, Zach Shiner, signing off.